Well, good morning. Welcome to your church. You know, approximately 2,000 years ago, approximately 9,000 kilometers away, Jesus commissioned Peter to establish his church. And Maple Avenue Baptist Church, you gather this morning in faithful obedience. And for that, Jesus regards her as beautiful. It's nothing that we've done. It's only Christ's righteousness. But all the same, there's nowhere else I'd rather be this morning. And I hope you feel the same way. So this morning, we're actually taking a break from our series in Isaiah. And whenever I have the chance, I go running to Jesus' miracles. So I would like to dig into Mark 2, uh, a passage called The Healing of the Paralytic. And I'd like, hopefully, in this passage to see that Jesus is making the invisible visible. If you don't have a, a Bible with you, you now do. The, the one in the pew rack in front of you is yours. And I believe you can find our passage on page 837. And since this is the most important part of our morning, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Mark 2, verses 1 to 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together digging into your word as a church. Would you please bless our time and cause the beauty of your word to dwell in our hearts? Amen. So what does faith look like to you? Can you conjure up a clear picture in your mind? What about sin? That might be easier. But what about divinity? The Bible gives us a number of descriptions of God and 
mostly if we're honest, I think we're a little bit befuddled by them. But is it even possible to picture his divinity? We'll see. As we unpack this passage in which Jesus heals a paralytic, I want us to catch a glimpse of what faith, sin, and even divinity look like. I said I I love digging into Jesus' miracles, and mainly it's because there's just so much more than meets the eye. We're, um, We're here in the book of Mark, which is the shortest of the four Gospels, and as soon as you start to read it, you see why. Mark is a man of few words. He gets right into his gospel account. In fact, he dives right into Jesus' adult ministry. He doesn't waste any time. And so already by the end of chapter 1, in verse 45, which is the verse that directly precedes our passage, Mark tells us that due to his fame as a healer, Jesus was being mobbed by crowds. In fact, it's gone to the point already where Jesus could no longer enter a town. We're told he was out in desolate places. And even there, people were coming to him from every quarter. So it's clear going into our passage at the beginning of chapter 2 that Jesus is already causing a huge sensation in Galilee. He's healed many already. So although our Bible titles this passage, Jesus heals a paralytic, we're going to see that this is not just another healing session. So as we delve into our passage, I propose we break it down into three sections, each section capturing something invisible that Jesus makes visible. And I'd like to show that by bringing something hidden to the light, Jesus teaches us something important about himself as well as about ourselves. So we'll break it down like this. First section, verses 1 to 5, in which Jesus makes faith visible. Secondly, verses 6 to 9, in which Jesus makes sin visible. And then finally, verses 10 to 12, where Jesus makes his divinity visible. So as we, as we jump in, do you want to know what faith looked like to me before I came to Christ? I came to faith about just over 10 years ago. And so to me, my picture of faith was a little bit muddled, mainly inspired by my atheistic upbringing, a lot of movies, just the culture in general. So it was a mix of superstitions, fairy tales, silly self-denial, do-goodery. See, more specifically, I saw faith as a crutch for the weak-minded and a blunt object for bullies to beat on others who did not meet arbitrary moral standards. How's that for a picture? If that's shocking to you, know that it's probably not too far off what the majority of the crowds around you think of your faith. At the grocery store, at work, at school, At your kid's soccer practice at the park, you get the idea. For the vast majority of people out there, around you every day, who do not know Christ, they probably have a similar idea of your faith. And mostly, they don't even see themselves as judgmental about it. That's just what they've been led to believe, and they don't question it, really. 
They don't give it much thought at all. I hope that going through this passage this morning, we come away seeing that if there is one area we should be encouraged to spend our mental energy, it's in biblical literacy. We're all theologians. We should make sure that we understand and can explain our faith intelligently. Because there is a sea of people out there who assume we are weak-minded. They really do. They have been led to believe that we have to be soft in the head to put our faith in an old book filled with fairy tales like the Bible. Allow me to give you a quick encouragement after that, um, with some insight from one of the greatest English language poets of the 20th century, T.S. Eliot. He wrote the introduction to the French philosopher Blaise Pascal's philosophical work, um, Les Pensées, Thoughts. And in his introduction, he has this insight. The majority of mankind is lazy-minded, incurious, absorbed in vanities, and tepid in emotion and therefore incapable of either much doubt or much faith. And when the ordinary man calls himself a skeptic or an unbeliever, that is ordinarily a simple pose, cloaking a disinclination to think anything out to a conclusion. So give your faith much thought, because the crowds around you do not. As Romans 8, 5 puts it, those who live according to the flesh set their minds to, on the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. I'm not saying your salvation depends on your ability to intelligently explain the concept of the Trinity. No. But we are called to always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for our hope. And like the crowd in Acts 4, when they saw Peter and John, we want those around us to be astonished that common men and women could be so bold. Okay, so back to our passage. We want to be able to challenge the image people around us have of faith, right? But then what is the image that we want people to see? Verse 5 says, Jesus saw their faith. Whatever he saw in them, that's what I want him to see in me. There's something recognizable about the Christian faith. What is it that Jesus saw? Well, thankfully, Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, captured what Jesus saw so that we may see it also. It's somewhere here in verses 1 to 4. So let's unpack it, and hopefully this picture comes into focus. Mark has given us a really good sense of the setting, the environment in which this is unfolding. Jesus was being mobbed by crowds who wanted him to heal them and to bless them to the point that he was out in the wilderness. It's important to realize that most of these people in these crowds, they're not disciples. They're not believers. They're more like bandwagon hoppers. They're fickle. Don't forget that it won't be long until these same crowds are shouting, crucify him. Think of it this way. When the Raptors won the NBA championship in 2019, 
Do you remember there were two million people at their victory parade lining Lakeshore Boulevard? But you have to set your mind back the previous year, the previous season. The company that I worked for at the time had access to box tickets at the ACC, and I couldn't give Raptors tickets away to our clients. All they wanted was the Leafs. Anyways, <laughs> anyone who was a true Raptors fan for more than a few seasons saw this massive crowd at the parade, and to them, these bandwagoners were nothing more than a huge obstacle in the way. They were crowding out their view of their team. And this past season, well, the bandwagons moved on. Um, and that's what these crowds were like. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, they'll be long gone. But his true followers will still be there. Even in our day, many people claim to be followers of Christ, but at the first sign of opposition, they're quick to side with the world. At the first sign of trouble, they run back to what they know. And that's important to understand about crowds in this passage. So verse 1 tells us that after some days of laying low in the wilderness, Jesus is able to return home to Capernaum. This is likely to Peter's house. But pretty quickly, the word spreads, and once again, he's swarmed, and his house is crowded. It's chock-a-block full of people all the way out the door. So, of course, Jesus is going to preach the word to them. That's just consistently what he does when he has an audience. And verse 2 shows that this time is no difference. In verse 3, we're introduced to a different group of people. We don't know their names, what they look like, where they're from, how they're dressed. We're just told they came. And that four men among them were carrying a paralytic on a stretcher. So far, there's nothing mentioned about them that really differentiates them from the crowd. But now in verse 4, something happens that sets them apart. When they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. So we need to dwell on this just a little bit because, as I mentioned, Mark is a man of few words and he's not very descriptive. So I'm not sure what you picture when you read this, but I want us to get a clear notion of what's going on. Maybe you're picturing some sort of thatched roof and they just tossed a couple palm branches off to make a hole. I think that's how I always pictured it, but this isn't a Polynesian island, right? This is Capernaum. This is the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel in the first century, where the houses had flat roofs that you could access from the outside, like a rooftop terrace. You could walk on this roof, and people would spend time there in the evening to enjoy the cool breeze, just as Terry described a couple weeks back. Based on some light reading on first century Middle Eastern architecture, I can tell you that the roof would have been made up of unhewn logs as rafters with branches and saplings bound tightly together as cross support, overlain with tightly packed dried clay, and then in Luke's account of this event, he specifically mentioned there was also tiles. This house is not convertible. It's not sky dome. The roof was a permanent, solid, weight-bearing structure. Removing the roof, or unroofing the roof, as the original Greek text puts it, 
is a major act of demolition. And in Peter's eyes, the owner of the house, a major act of vandalism, I would think. So just so that we're clear, this is what happened. This group of people showed up carrying their disabled friend on a portable bed. They saw there was no way to get to Jesus through the crowd with a stretcher. So they went up onto the rooftop terrace and started ripping the roof apart like their Chip and Joanna gains on demo day. They're not the rooftoppers that Terry spoke of. And then what happens? Verse 4 continues. They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And that is what Jesus saw when Mark tells us in verse 5 that he saw their faith. So what does faith look like? Do we have an answer yet? Maybe we can start to put it together. The first thing that we see about faith is that it does not falter when it is tested. These friends did not turn around and go home when they saw that the house was too crowded. What happens to our faith when things do not go our way? When we're faced with an obstacle, we don't get you know, the promotion we were praying for, the proposal we were praying for, the diagnosis, we were praying for. When the phone won't ring, people turn their backs on us. What happens to our faith at that point when we just can't catch a break? Does our hope stay anchored in Christ? Or do we let our circumstances obstruct our view of Jesus? Does our hope stay completely anchored? Or do we start looking for something else to give us what we need? Because there are plenty of brambles looking to choke out our faith. Plenty of strongholds on our heart. Plenty of other options vying for our faith. Work, the liquor cabinet, the gym, YouTube. There are plenty of people who will distract us from the object of our faith. Motivational speakers and influencers of all sorts, from Oprah to PewDiePie, from Greta Thunberg to Dr. Phil, even Ben Shapiro, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson, they're all eager to prey on our impatience, our disappointments, our anxieties and our fears. Whatever wisdom or insight they have into the human condition, none of them are worthy or deserving of our faith. So do not let them distract you from the one who is. Our faith in Jesus Christ must be central in our lives, unwaveringly steadfast. The Christian faith is not fickle like the crowds. We're taught to expect the testing of our faith. Why do we face these challenges to our faith? Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 7, in this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We face challenges so that our faith will be tested because true faith withstands the test. And true faith is glorious to Christ. 
So when your plans do not pan out, do not let your disappointment, your anxiety, your pride, your fear crowd out your view of Christ. Keep your faith rooted in him. Rise above and find a new perspective to see Christ clearly. Cut through the noise of the world. Smash through the distractions like it's demo day. Turn off Netflix, log out of YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, and instead invite your neighbor over for a meal. Serve the needy, support those caring for the disabled, serve in your church, encourage your pastor, pray to God, and above all, read your Bible, engage intellectually, wrestle with and seek to understand the Word of God. Refocus your mind on the object of your faith, on Christ. You see, that is what Jesus saw when he saw their faith. That is what we want everyone around us who do not know Christ to see in us. The visual manifestation of our faith. Faith is not passive. It's an observable action. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit, and thus you will recognize them by their fruit. This is the fruit that he was talking about. Observable acts of faith. A living, active faith that perseveres when tested. A faith that does not get thrown off course by the winds of this world. And that smashes through the obstacles of this life and keeps its gaze squarely on Christ. We are called to live in a way that can be seen as holy. If that sounds like legalism to you, please hear this. Grace is not freedom to live as we please, but freedom to live with God. With the transforming power of the Spirit, transforming, reshaping us into a new creation. With hearts that love and strive for holiness. That is sanctification. Do not confuse it with justification. Can we see sanctification as beautification? Like Jonathan Edwards? Look, when we read about this group, we can be tempted to see them as late arrivers, rude interrupters, line cutters, destructive vandals. And let's be honest, the world tends to see us Christians all of us who hold on to our faith as rude, pushing our faith on them, bigoted, and narrow-minded. Jesus makes sure we don't miss the point. Jesus wants us to see what is unseen by the crowd, their faith. That's the first of three main points we set out to uncover in this passage. Now let's look at how Jesus responds to this observable faith. Jesus turns to the paralytic and says, son, your sins are forgiven. That's it. It's all forgiven. Jesus forgives the paralytic because of his faith. No more, no less. Jesus does not forgive him because of what he or his friends have done. It's the simplest possible interaction. You have faith, I forgive. Do not overcomplicate this. That's justification. Do not confuse it with sanctification. And think of what this means for us. All those times we put ourselves first, 
All those times we took more than our share, every time we bent the truth, bent the rules, or worse, we don't know this paralytic or what he's done. It could be way more serious than that. All our darkest, most shameful thoughts, words, deeds, all gone. No longer counted against us. I want everyone to hear this part very clearly. Because maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking that you can never be forgiven. You're beyond forgiveness. What you've done is too dark. Jesus is waiting for you. Waiting for you to turn to him, to give it over to him, and he will forgive it all. You don't have to prove your faith like the paralytic's friends. There's no test, no feats you must accomplish. You turning to him in your heart is enough. We'll see in a minute that Jesus knows what's in your heart. So even now, you can turn to him and ask for his forgiveness. And you will be freed of those chains. Your past that's weighing you down, you don't need to be bound up by that any longer. Let Jesus take those chains for you. He's already paid the price. Praise God. This is a remarkable truth. But I do have to ask you this. Is that what you were expecting Jesus to say? Son, your sins are forgiven. It is a surprising response, right? Now, it may not be surprising to us for the reasons that we might think. See, most of us as modern readers will likely read this and think, wait, what? He's paralyzed. Why, why is he forgiving his sins? He needs physical healing, not spiritual healing. Now, I'll let you think through the, what that means, the implications for how we should prioritize the focus of our ministries, meeting physical needs or spiritual needs. But to those present, the witnesses to this event, they were surprised too, but for another reason entirely. You see, back in Jesus' day, many people assumed a correlation between physical and spiritual health. People specifically assumed that sin caused illness and disability. And this is made quite explicit in John 9, where Jesus' disciples see a blind man and ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. That was a common misconception in Jesus' day. And Jesus corrects this thinking in John 9. Um, So that's not what would have been surprising about Jesus' response to the paralytic. What's most surprising to his audience is that Jesus is doing something that only God has the authority to do. The scribes among the crowd in particular... We're told they're scribes. They would have been familiar with Isaiah, who proclaims in Isaiah 43, verse 25, the words of God saying, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So what is their reaction to Jesus? The scribes, they would have been part of the existing Jewish religious order. And we all know how this ends, eventually they will be in stark opposition to Jesus. But at this stage, they're just part of the crowd. They're merely curious about what's going on. But you see this verse, verse 5, 
This is the hinge point where things go very, very differently. There's a very sharp turn right here. The scribes do not speak out. They do not walk out. They do not lash out. But they question in their hearts. They conceal the offense that they feel in their hearts, even as they sit there. And in verse 7, Mark gives voice to the thoughts that they harbor in their hearts. He's blaspheming. They ask the question, who can forgive sins but God alone? They know the answer. The answer is embedded right into the question. God alone. That's the whole point. From their perspective, Jesus is usurping God's authority. He is blaspheming. And to us, again, as modern readers, we're likely desensitized to blasphemy. But when they level this accusation, they mean it as a grave condemnation. They're fully aware of the punishment for blasphemy. Because as scribes, they're also well-versed in Jewish law, specifically Leviticus 24, which states that whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall surely be put to death. This is not a trifle to those in the audience. This is a capital offense. Can you hear the echoes of crucify him in their hearts? You see, now verse 8 tells us that Jesus perceives in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. The scribes never voiced these thoughts. And this is the second point I want to make sure that we see clearly in this passage. Sin starts in our heart long before we act out on it. The religious leaders will carry out Jesus' death sentence on Good Friday. But right now, they've already murdered him in their hearts. Without saying a word, without standing up, the sin has already occurred. And the scribes are trying to hide it in the recesses of their hearts. The scribes are hiding their sin of unbelief in their hearts, like John describes in John 3. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But unfortunately for the scribes, there is nowhere to hide your sin. God shines his light into the darkest corners, and our sin will be exposed. As Luke warns in Luke 12, there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. So the same way that all sin will be exposed in time, Jesus exposes the scribes' sinful hearts. He perceives their dark thoughts and asks them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Make no mistake, this is the more serious indictment in our passage. Jesus is not guilty of blasphemy, but by asking this question, Jesus is condemning the scribes. They are guilty of the sin of unbelief. As Billy Graham puts it, the only sin God cannot forgive is the sin of refusing to turn to him and accept his forgiveness. To put it another way, the only sin God can't forgive is the sin of unbelief. Woe to these scribes. 
and woe to us if we let our circumstances distract us from the object of our hope and our faith. That's the second main point this morning. As we continue in our passage, Jesus then sets up an interesting logical argument. It's a simple question. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? This is like asking someone to prove they can ride a bicycle, and they show you their maillot jaune, the one at the Tour de France. Or like asking someone to prove they can calculate the right tip amount at the restaurant, and they show you their advanced calculus PhD from Queen's University. You get the point. I show you that I can do the harder thing. Will you believe I can do the easier thing? Of course. Then watch this. And then in verse 10, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Sure, Jesus is healing the paralytic, but he's doing so much more here. He made sure that we saw the faith of the paralytic and his friends. He made sure that we saw the sin of the scribes. And now he's making sure that we see something else. He wants us to see that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Well, if by forgiving the paralytic sins, Jesus was implying that he had divine authority, he is now being much more explicit about it. Because the scribes would know who this Son of Man is. They're also well-versed in another Old Testament prophet, Daniel, and they'd be familiar with his prophecy from Daniel 7, which reads, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And who is this son of man? He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is claiming this title for himself. And whether he is to be believed or not in his claim all hinges on what the paralytic does next. I know Mark is a man of few words, but now can you feel the suspense can you see what's at stake here? That crowd would be leaning forward. They're all captivated with bated breath, staring at the paralytic, looking for the slightest twitch or spasm. And Mark tells us in verse 12, he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. I love this so much. The paralytic could not walk into the house because... He was paralyzed. He could not be carried into the house because it was too crowded. But after his friends demolished the roof, he's lowered, not unlike we picture a coffin being lowered into a grave right to Jesus' feet. Jesus speaks words over him, forgives his sins, and he is raised from paralysis. He jumps up, rolls up his cot, 
And while everyone packed into the house is still picking up the jaws off the floor, he walks out, pushing his way through the crowd. What a sight to behold, not only for the visib- what's visibly taking place here, but for the invisible repercussions of what just happened. His rising up and walking out the door is a visual manifestation of Jesus' divine authority, of his deity. Jesus has logically proven his claim. He is who he says he is. He's the prophesied son of man, the Messiah, God incarnate. And this, this is the foundation of our faith. We are confident in the assurance of Christ's sovereignty of his redeeming power. We Christians are not required to suspend our disbelief. We're not required to cling to a blind faith. The Christian faith holds up to scrutiny. The witness accounts recorded in the Bible are trustworthy. The gospel makes logical sense. And it holds up to philosophical questioning. As the resurrected Jesus invited Thomas to scrutinize his wounds in John 20, we are invited to wrestle with our faith and to engage with the word of God and biblical exegesis. We can be confident in our salvation through faith in Christ. Praise God. That's the third point I wanted to make this morning. You see, the crowd may have seen Jesus heal before. But as they exclaim to close out this passage, we never saw anything like this. This is more than a miraculous healing. This is the culmination of the scriptures, the fulfillment of the prophecies, the clear and undeniable demonstration that God's redemptive plan is unfolding in front of their eyes. Now, of course, Mark will record the witness account of Jesus' earthly ministry until the full plan is brought to light. And it will not be until the crucifixion that Jesus' followers will see just how dark the sin of the scribes and the religious leaders was. And they will see how hard the forgiveness of sin truly was. Although it was the easiest of the two tasks to demonstrate the full cost of that forgiveness was borne by Jesus on the cross. So today, though we grieve the terrible consequences of sin, we look forward to the time when all mysteries will be revealed and everything hidden will be brought to the light. We look forward with confident hope and steadfast faith to Christ's return and the end of sin. But in the meantime, let us stay focused on Christ no matter the distractions, the obstacles, rooted in the word. Let us turn into the light, repenting of our sins, allowing the light to cast out all darkness. 
Let us proclaim and submit to Christ's sovereignty. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes and keep them focused on your glorious promise of eternal redemption? Would you help us smash through all distractions to our faith? Would you help us keep, a, keep us rooted and confident in the knowledge of the events that took place on the cross? Help us stay rooted in the fact that the price was paid once and for all for all our sins. And so no matter what the crowds around us think, help us confidently turn away from our sin and turn into the light. Help us turn away from darkness, the darkness of this world, and proclaim Jesus has overcome the world. Amen.